Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from Stats Newsroom here in Boston, Massachusetts. Rebecca is recording from Stats San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, May 17th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Perhaps you've heard of Theranos. John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal reporter who exposed the company's many misdeeds, wrote a book about the whole experience, and he'll join us to talk about the famous ex-unicorn. Valiant is back in the news with a new name and an ongoing fraud and money laundering trial involving drugs, lies, and audio tape. We'll talk about new revelations about dysfunction within the company. More biotech companies are filing for initial public offerings without ever testing their drugs in human beings. Is this a good thing? We'll discuss. And lastly, we'll try something new with this podcast, a lightning round. Hot biotech takes served fast. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. Few stories have rocked the business world more over the past few years than that of Theranos the $9 billion unicorn that promised to revolutionize the blood testing business. Turns out, though, that all the promises were pretty much empty, and the company and its CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, just settled with the SEC on charges of fraud, and now it's worth basically nothing. John Carreyou is the Wall Street Journal investigative reporter who has spent the past few years exposing the blood testing company's lies. Most recently, John has written the definitive story of the Theranos saga. The book is called, What Else? Bad Blood. The book comes out this Monday. And Rebecca got John on the phone to talk about what he learned through the whole reporting process, what surprised him as he went through the Theranos saga, and what people should look forward to as this continues to play out. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for people who've been following the saga closely in reading your reporting in the Wall Street Journal, uh, what's new in your book? A big part of what's new is the history of the company Really, uh, the company had existed for uh, 12 years before I exposed this fraud in, in 2015. Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the founder of Theranos, had dropped out of Stanford in 2003. And so uh, she had built up uh, Theranos over the course of 12 years, which is a, a long span of time for the Silicon Valley startup. And, and she really only uh, broke out and became famous uh, in, in the 2013-2014 period. So the a lot of the book, the first three quarters of the book, in fact, are uh, the events over those 12 years that lead to her fame and then to her exposure by me in the Wall Street Journal. And so the new book is also the first time you've told your own experience of what it was like to report this crazy story. What was the most surreal moment for you in the process? Right. Uh, the last quarter of the book is, is told in the first person, and, and uh, I narrate my investigation. And, and the most surreal moment, if, if we reduce it to a moment, was when uh, David Boys and three other lawyers came to the Wall Street Journal's uh, Midtown newsroom and, and uh, met with us for five hours and were both threatening and going around in circles. They, they told us that, you know, we had misappropriated uh, trade secrets and that they were going to sue us if we published them. And whenever I asked questions about whether uh, how many tests uh, Theranos was using its te technology for, uh, they would invoke trade secrets not to answer those questions. And so that, that was a very surreal 
a moment. I would say uh, the, the craziest moment or moments was when I came to suspect that several of my confidential sources were being surveilled, uh, probably by private investigators. You know, as I explain in the book, there, there's pretty definitive evidence that uh, at the very least two of them were surveilled. It was pretty fascinating to, to read that in, in the book. Um, so tell me a little bit more about Sonny Balwani. Uh, this is the number two, former number two executive at the company and the boyfriend, one-time boyfriend of Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, you paint the most definitive picture of him uh, to date in the book. Who is this guy? He's very important because he essentially uh, ran Theranos as a partnership with Elizabeth and uh, he uh, entered her life early on, uh, the summer before she started uh, her undergraduate studies uh, at Stanford. They met in Beijing. They were both enrolled in Stanford's uh, intensive Mandarin program. And then he became part of her life. And when uh, 18 months later, uh, she dropped out of Stanford to create Theranos, he was back in her life. And, and uh, pretty soon uh, they were romantically involved and living together. Uh, during the first uh, six or seven years of Theranos, he didn't work at the company, but he was uh, a presence in her life as an advisor. And then in 2009, the company had burned through the, the first nearly $50 million that it had raised in its first three rounds of funding. And uh, Sonny came to her aid by personally guaranteeing a uh, credit line and at that point joined the company as its number two executive. And so as you observe in, in the book, there are sort of two competing narratives about Sonny's role. Uh, on one hand, the narrative goes he was this much older man who manipulated Elizabeth and man masterminded the fraud. On the other hand, Elizabeth knew what she was doing and called the shots on her own. Which of these narratives do you think your reporting supports? My reporting definitely supports the narrative that Elizabeth knew absolutely what she was doing and that it was certainly a partnership, but that she had the last say. And, and so I would push back strongly against the notion that he manipulated her and that he was sort of her Zengali. They were doing it together. And in fact, when things really hit the fan after my first story came out and the fallout from that story with the regulatory inspections and the legal trouble, she went ahead and fired him, and he took the fall. And so uh, this competing narrative that uh, she was under his control, I think, is, is inaccurate. Do you think Silicon Valley has learned any lessons from Theranos? I certainly hope so. I think, you know, one big lesson is that uh, Elizabeth positioned Theranos as a traditional tech company. She headquartered it in Palo Alto, which is basically the the heart of uh, Silicon Valley, and, and really uh, the role model that she should have used is really uh, more north and, and south San Francisco, where there's the, the biotech cluster, the Amgens and the Genentechs of the world, and where there's real medical science going on. And what she lost sight of is the fact that Theranos was first and foremost a healthcare company, a, a medical technology company, not a software company, not a computer company. And your reporting in the story, of course, is, is ongoing. What should listeners following uh, the saga be watching for in the coming months? Right, two things. Elizabeth announced in, a, in an email to investors about a month ago that Theranos' cash hoard was going to drop below $3 million by the end of July. And under the covenants of its loan agreement with Fortress, the private equity firm, uh, that will allow Fortress to seize the company's assets and to liquidate them. So what we're looking at is a very likely liquidation of Theranos come early August. 
And before then, or perhaps after them, I don't know the exact timing, people who followed this saga should also be looking out for an announcement from the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco, because they have been conducting a criminal investigation of Theranos for now more than two years. And uh, my sources tell me that that investigation is is nearing its conclusion and that it's likely to uh, result in uh, indictments of Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani. Well, once again, uh, John's new book, Bad Blood, comes out on Monday. I can say, having read an advanced copy, that it is a fantastic read and uh, highly recommend it. Uh, John, thanks again for uh, joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, Damien, Rebecca, remember Valiant Pharmaceuticals? I do remember Valiant. They got famous for buying a bunch of companies, raising a bunch of drug prices, and then maybe kind of sort of committing a little bit of fraud. Well, so they're back in the news for two reasons. One, they don't want you to call them Valiant anymore, and they're about to be embroiled in a trial involving drugs, lies, and audio tape. So to summarize this case so far, The government has been investigating charges of fraud and money laundering within Valiant's tangled web of relationships with shell companies. Now it's emerged that the government's star witness was secretly recording his colleagues. Never a dull moment at Valiant, clearly. And it was this whole self-dealing scandal that brought Valiant down, right? Yeah, exactly. There was a time in which Valiant was sort of the toast of Wall Street. The stock was above $200. They had this bizarre but replicable plan of buying up companies, raising prices of drugs, and just consistently delivering what shareholders wanted to see. And then it came out that they were, perhaps, double booking these sales through, as Rebecca mentioned, a tangled web that we don't have to get into now, and I probably couldn't recount from memory accurately if I tried. But basically what we're now witnessing is the long and painful legal hangover of those heady days. So let's talk about the name change. Valiant as a word has become essentially synonymous with everything everyone hates about the drug industry. This is a letter from someone who's here. She has to take a brand name drug, been taking it since the early 1980s. At that time, it cost approximately $180 for 10 shots. The latest refill was $14,700 for the same 10 vials. And the company is called Valiant Pharmaceuticals. So you you can probably imagine why the company's current management is very keen on rebranding. So starting in July, Valiant will be known as Bausch Health. Rebecca, where'd they get that name? So the company's new CEO, Joe Papa, said in a press release, uh, he said, quote, the Bausch name embodies the rich history of innovation, fortitude, and dedication to patient health, dating back to when J.J. Bausch opened his first optical goods shop more than 165 years ago, end quote. But um, that's not the real history of the company, right, Damien? Not quite, no. And this is such a perfectly and quintessentially valiant thing. It's true that J.J. Bausch, long since dead, was a German optometrist and blah, 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 blah. But valiant only came upon the Bausch largesse in 2013 when it paid $8.7 billion to buy Bausch & Lohm from a private equity firm. And this was during those debt-fueled, heady days we were talking about when they were just acquiring companies left and right, raising prices, and charming one Bill Ackman of hedge fund fame. And so it's kind of adorably valiant that they would rest on the borrowed and purchased laurels of a dead German person when, in fact, they remain a Canadian-American transcontinental consumer of companies and incurrer of debts. Let's now talk about this uh, trial. Rebecca, who's being accused of what? 
So this is a fraud and money laundering trial. The two people being accused here are Gary Tanner, he's a former executive at Valiant, and Andrew Davenport, he's a former head of Philidor, which is the mail order pharmacy that did very cozy business with Valiant. The most exciting part of the trial so far came earlier this week when the government's star witness took the stand. Damien, can you break down for us what happened? Yes, so that star witness in question is the Thomas Pinchon named Laser Kornwasser. And he is a former Valiant exec who a lot of people thought was sort of the brain behind the alleged fraud. And what it turns out is that in fact, he was secretly taping his colleagues as they said what could be very incriminating things as this trial progresses. It's gonna be fascinating as this trial continues to keep watching more details about the dysfunction that went down at Valiant, or should I say Bausch. Here's a question. Are investors ready to once again fall in love with super risky biotech? I think we can find an answer to that question in the growing trend of preclinical IPOs. These are companies that are at the earliest stages of drug development. They've only run experiments in animals or test tubes. Companies like these have traditionally relied on money from VCs or other private funding sources. But now they're starting to brave the public markets earlier. So we've seen this before, and the interest and ability of these early stage companies to go public tends to follow the frothy cycles that biotech goes through. So I was looking at some numbers from Bio, the trade group, and from the start of the financial crisis in 2008 through 2011, there were no preclinical IPOs in the United States. But starting in 2013, when everything started to get a little bit overheated, we saw about 30. And then, if you recall, everything sort of reached its zenith in the summer of 2015, and there was kind of a correction in the biotech market and a sort of semi-long winter set in. But the green shoots that started to spring out in 2017 have sort of brought these early stage companies back to the fore. So in 2017, just one of the 40 biotechs to go public was preclinical. But so far in 2018, about 18% of all the companies that have successfully pulled off IPOs have never tested their products in human beings. All of this raises a question, what could possibly go wrong? So that's a good question, Rebecca. I guess the short answer would be that basically everything can go wrong. I mean, when you are dealing with a preclinical company, you're dealing with company that's basically as risky as you can get. There's no human data. We don't know how these drugs will interact, whether they're safe to, to be put into humans, whether they're gonna be uh, efficacious in, in patients. And that just makes it much more difficult to kind of evaluate these companies. And again, in, in a typical cycle, this, that's the risk that would be borne by the venture capitalists and the private backers of these companies. But now what's going on is as these companies come public is that you know, a, lot, a lot of less sophisticated investors will have exposure to these companies. And Rebecca, you talked to Jorge Conde, who is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, the big tech VC firm that is now getting into biotech. And he had some thoughts about this phenomenon, right? He did. I was expecting him to point to some of the risk that uh, Adam mentioned, and, and he certainly acknowledged that. But at the same time, he thinks that these earlier IPOs are, in general, a good thing for the fundraising environment. That's because he thinks specialist investors are sophisticated enough to pick and choose wisely. He also saw the risk as being mitigated uh, when people are investing in multiple companies across a portfolio or across an index, because, of course, traditionally, the risk can get spread that way. So I think Conde's perspective is interesting in that when he says it's a, that preclinical IPOs are generally a good thing for the fundraising environment, 
I think that means that they're generally a good thing for private venture capitalists who might see a quick exit for their most risky private biotech startups. I don't necessarily see that as a good thing for the overall biotech public markets, where you're basically just, again, dumping a lot more really risky companies into the market and letting less sophisticated investors play around with those companies. And a lesson from the last time that biotech was so frothy that all these early stage companies were able to go public is that even when preclinical companies don't blow up, oftentimes their stock prices lag because after they go public, there's so much time it takes to cease tinkering with all those test tubes and cancerous mice and start a human clinical trial. And biotech investors are very much a what have you done for me lately group of people that you'll see companies go public at $16 and then just be trading around 10 bucks a year later when nothing's really happened except for ennui. And I think this week even, we saw a risk of some of these early IPOs. Uh, one of the latest such companies to announce IPO plans, the antibody drug developer Abpro, uh, last week postponed what was supposed to be a $60 million IPO. Then it just announced that it canceled those plans altogether. Yeah, and I think that's a measure of sanity in the market. I mean, I... I'm sort of happy that a you know a preclinical IPO candidate you know failed to get out into the market. I mean, I think that that maybe kind of goes to the to the point that you know public investors are vetting these companies and saying uh, you know no thank you. But that being said, over the past years there has been so much private funding flowing into these startups that you can guarantee you're going to see more of these early stage companies at least trying to go public. And what we'll find out is whether they succeed, whether they fail, or whether another correction is in the cards. So lastly, let's do a lightning round. We got some hot topics in biotech to talk about. Hot takes, serve quickly. Let's start with uh, Damien. You did this really great video this week about how drugs are named. Some of these names are rather weird. So let's kind of quickly, best and worst drug names that, you, that you've ever heard. What, what do you like? Well, so good and bad kind of get scrambled in my brain here because all drug names sound absurd to me. So I mostly just look for things that are sonorous. One of my favorites is the biomarin drug Vimazim because it kind of sounds like the chorus of that Rex and Effects song. I like Vikira Pack, which sounds like uh, Pokemon. I'm partial to Genta Duetto, uh, which is a diabetes drug that sounds a lot like an Italian coffee drink. Yeah, I'm waiting for them to, I'm waiting for somebody to name a drug Buca de Pepe. <laughs> I don't know, that just popped into my head. All right, let's move on. Okay. This, this is supposed to be a lightning round. We're yeah, moving on. Uh, President Trump, his drug speech last Friday. Damien, any quick thoughts? Headline, no one cared. Biotech stocks went up, PBM stocks went up, nobody's afraid of the president. However, a cliche that has kind of emerged in Washington is that with Donald Trump, it's like there's no president because his White House runs so differently from White House's past. But an externality to that cliche is that there being no president means all these cabinet secretaries are remarkably more powerful than they would be in a traditional power structure. And so that brings us to Alex Azar, who with his whole Medicare tinkering, what have you, is terrifying drug companies, and Scott Gottlieb, head of the FDA, who is kind of doing the same thing with generics and name and shame and et cetera. So there's that. That's not a lightning round response, but whatever. Let's move on. Uh, Rebecca, there is a new TV show on Fox. Tell us about it. So this is called The Passage. Uh, the trailer hypes up a clinical trial testing, quote, 
a drug that makes people immune to disease, end quote. I have no doubt that that will be depicted with full accuracy and realism. I'm still holding out for the JLo CRISPR show, which is, I understand is in developmental hell now, but until I will be on strike from the Fox network until that is on my television. The funniest thing about that, Damien, is that you're actually telling the truth. That's a real show. Oh, absolutely. So real quick, let's pivot to Wall Street. There's a magazine called Institutional Investor, which many of you have probably heard of, and every year they do a survey of subscribers as to who are the best sell-side analysts, and sell-side analysts compete for this honor. Adam, what's the latest on that? Yes, Damien, anyone who reads sell-side research notes uh, these days will see the sort of, at the end of the note, the little pleading, please vote for me for I-I, as they call it. Um, Michael Yee of Jeffries went one step further. He made a bobblehead of himself and sent it out. We actually have one here in the office. Which is probably tied to how he earned the affectionate, I think it's affectionate, nickname Yeezus. So Rebecca, it seems like Joe Jimenez, the former Novartis CEO, is starting to talk. Right, after a week of Novartis's worst PR nightmare regarding the contract with uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer. Uh, Joe Jimenez finally broke his radio silence. He picked up the phone yesterday to talk to Bloomberg, Forbes, and Reuters. And basically he just said, I'm really sorry for bringing shame upon my family. What I was somewhat annoyed about is that no one bothered to ask him what he's been doing this whole past week. Like, was he like on an ayahuasca trip or a vision quest to really atone for his sins? (laughs) The first and last lightning round, everyone! (laughs) And lastly, let's finish with some good news. Uh, In a previous podcast episode, we have talked about a gene therapy for a rare inherited eye disease that's marketed by Spark Therapeutics. Uh, Jack Hogan, who was the first boy to be treated with Lux Turna after it was approved, had a checkup this week, and he is now playing basketball at night with his friends, and that's a really great thing. And that does it for this episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Matthew Orr and Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we would love to hear from you, whether you have suggestions for future topics, future guests, future lightning rounds, and or the end of lightning forever. We appreciate your feedback and we read your emails and you can send them to readoutloud at statnews.com. Thanks for Thanks listening. Thanks for listening. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> you can do it, Adam. All right. See you next week. <laughs>